Hello, and welcome to Laidback Lush. I'm Michael, a former wine sales associate and vineyard worker. And I'm Gabe. I'm WSET Level 3 certified in wine, and I'm an administrator for a wine and spirits educating body. We are a wine, beer, and spirits podcast. Yes. And today we are going to be discussing the history of viticulture in the Burgundy region. Again, one of my favorites. Uh, We're going to be talking about who brought in the practice, how the grapes got there, when viticulture took off, and what made the area successful. Indeed. Um, Now, the region today, as we know it, if you need a refresher and you weren't able to join us for our last episode, the area of Burgundy is a highly prestigious wine-producing area in central France, defined by the slopes which compose Chablis, Côte d'Or, Cote Chalonnais and Macon, all of which produce primarily single grape varietal wines, either Pinot Noir or Chardonnay. This is a World Heritage Site from UNESCO and is known around the world as being the example of terroir, uh, mostly nerds and people who <laughs> are uh, us. Yeah, us. So mostly nerds and then people who have money to invest in wine. Not us. Not us. Those are the two groups of people that you're primarily going to see talking about this area. If you want to learn more, though, about the area as it is today, go ahead and turn this off and give us a listen on the previous episode, which covered the regions, the wine varietals, also the legal definitions and the labeling system. And as the climate. And the climate. We get into all of that, as well as the concept of climat, which we will briefly mention today yes. in our last episode. As always, we do also ask that you follow us on Instagram and Twitter at LaidbackLush. If you would like to hear all of our up-to-date hot takes, bad takes, good takes, educated takes. Mostly bad. Mostly, mostly bad. <laughs> Even our good takes are actually just bad takes in disguise. So <laughs> That's our brand. That's our brand. Constant bad takes. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a bunch of bad takes that are like paper mache together into a somewhat cohesive shape. I can support that. Yeah. I think that's a good selling point. Yeah. No, exactly. That'll get us on Shark Tank. (laughs) God. (laughs) So we have this uh, audio clip of you, and we would just like to ask if this is still the way you think. Yes. Yes. Yes, it (laughs) is. Absolutely. But it also depends on whether or not you'll give us money. So, um, (laughs) (laughs) and if you would like to support us, we don't have anything set up for that, but we love doing this podcast and we would love to be able to continue doing it. Getting back, though, uh, to Burgundy, the region itself used to be a seabed awaiting to express its unique terroir as it rose to the surface. (laughs) I I was definitely making fun of Michael a little bit when he was writing this portion. Hey, come on. I mean, fine. I'll do it the right way then. (laughs) It's got a lot of dirt and it's a special kind of dirt and it makes good wine. (laughs) Makes good wine. So lucky people tried it. <laughs> like, <laughs> no, 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 no. It should be more like this. Newly formed from a seabed, awaiting to express its unique terroir, the area we know today as Burgundy was first settled upon by the Celts. Its slopes largely undiscovered as the resource that the practices of viticulture would uncover. Yeah, so first there were uh, the... Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. I'm golf clapping. Yeah, th- yeah I appreciate it. <laughs> I've been Michael. Thanks for coming to my spoken word. Um, <laughs> Burgundy. 
$300. Still enjoyable or scam? <laughs> and we even oh, like burgundy. <laughs> we like burgundy. We don't like the prices of burgundy. Yeah. Yeah. So anyways, um, so after it rose up to the surface, we did have the Celts that were settled on it, but the name burgundy doesn't even come from those individuals who may or may not have had grapes in general. Yeah. Uh, it actually came from a group of Scandinavian Germanic peoples who came from Bornholm, which is a Baltic island. So they came from the Baltic Sea, yep. came down, and they ended up settling in the area that we know today as Burgundy. In the fourth century. Yeah. Baby. So if the Celts weren't the ones that were bringing in wine, and I'm guessing that the Baltic Sea wasn't exactly producing a lot of wine grapes either, mm -hmm. where did we actually see wine grapes first introduced to the region that we can really count on? So that would have come from the Romans, who, as you probably know if you've studied world history at all, the Romans did come into France at this point in history and had a big attempt at conquering everything and did end up conquering a large portion of it. And they brought with them their grapes, their winemaking techniques, and that helped introduce a more stable wine uh, culture, I guess, or um, development of wine and making why, in Burgundy. Why did they constantly bring wine to everywhere that they conquered? Well, uh, for one thing, it was good for company morale for the soldiers um it was also kind of viewed and you can listen to our world history of wine series for this they kind of almost viewed it as a way of um cultural domination if you will oh wow as well cultural conquering where you know you're conquering the land you're planting your grapes you're bringing this practice and it was also very good monetarily for them as well because then you know you have wine to sell which is always nice so that was a that was a interesting way that they viewed wine and, and how they incorporated it into their military campaigns. But they didn't conquer the Burgundians, as I understand it. The Burgundians ended up settling there right up against their borders and became auxiliaries for them, which not only allowed the Burgundians to have the option of trade, but also allowed for the Burgundians themselves to expand their power throughout the region. And if I'm not mistaken, this could have also been one of the ways that even though winemaking was certainly brought by the Romans, the Burgundians might have, through trade, been the ones that ended up actually introducing Pinot Noir to the region since their territory extended all the way to the Rhine River. Yeah. So, well, kind of going off of that, Burgundy was later conquered by the Franks who did come from Germany in the 6th century. Mm. Now, we don't really know exactly where Pinot Noir came from, at least in my research, I was not able to find that in Burgundy as a region. We don't really know where it came from. So it is thought that it probably did come from the Rhine region, either from the Burgundians or possibly when the Franks came in, they might have brought Pinot Noir vines as well. Because um, Pinot Noir does have a very long history kind of transitioning into the Middle Ages, actually, which is, will be our next uh, talking point. Um, the Middle Ages... Nobility really liked Pinot Noir in mm -hmm. Europe. It was considered to be basically like the top grape that you could grow. It was very difficult to grow. It still is actually very difficult to grow, but it produces very good wine. It's a very popular variety for a reason, as are, you know, Chardonnay, Cabernet Sauvignon, and all those grapes, right? But there is something unique about Pinot Noir in 
that it is considered exemplary of the terroir that it's inside of in a way that other wines aren't. They're so delicate that they tend to be considered more expressive. And our good old boys at the monasteries and the abbeys, which we're about to dive into, are partially responsible for that notion. So we have these Burgundians, we have the Romans, the Celts are no longer around, or if they are, they're not exactly the most, well, well-enfranchised. Yeah. Um, and they're doing their thing. We have a bunch of different battles, political parties, kings, until we get to the Franks of the late 6th century. And then by the Middle Ages, we end up seeing a turn toward a little bit more stability, as well as kind of a religious awakening. Yeah. So in the Middle Ages, the vineyards were given to the monks by nobility, and you had the abbey at Cluny become this kind of centerpiece of religious authority, and that was around 900 AD. So you had the Cistercian centered in the abbey of, how do you pronounce that, Chateau? I, I think it's something like that, Chateau, Chateau. It's not Chateau, I know that. We are a... Uh hopelessly inept when it comes to our french pronunciation just gonna already uh but we'll spell it for you put that out there it's c-i with a little cap t-e-a-u-x so if you know how to pronounce that dm us so something to note about the cistercians and the benedictine is the benedictine monks were kind of the first settlers of the region in terms of monks that came in and they really got into the work ethic of maintaining the vineyards. Um, you know, as we just said, nobility had given a lot of this vineyard space, these vineyard holdings to abbeys for sacramental purposes in large part, also for monetary purposes. The Benedictine were very good about maintaining grapes. They were very good about doing good winemaking, but the Cistercians were the ones who really began to narrow in our focus of terroir and climats and all that which we'll be getting into here that's interesting okay so the cistercians they're sitting there and they're just kind of doing their best but it's still the established practice of viticulture that had been in the region mm -hmm. what's interesting is that this region became known for its religious significance with abbeys the octagonal churches and holy sites popping up in all these different areas, it became an area of pilgrimage and also allowed for complete self-governance by the clergy as they only answered to the Pope and not the duchy who were based in Dijon. Yeah, uh, Dijon at this point was this huge center of trade and also where the royalty was primarily living and dictating. Which is the duchy, if you don't know that terminology. Yeah. Basically the nobility of the land. And they were the ones that charged them with the production of the wine for the sacrament and were basically paying all of their stuff. So now you had a culture that valued hard work with the Benedictine. They had no need of money due to the royal commission. They had a very chaste lifestyle that neither freely valued pleasure or entertainment and a creed of poverty. So they, they didn't really have much to focus on other than wine. Yeah. As a result of this, we started to see something different in how wine was handled. Mm -hmm. So the Cistercians in particular became very rigorous and meticulous record keepers. They began to notice, 
hey, this vineyard that faces southeast produces really good wine, but this vineyard that faces north, I mean, the wine's okay, but it's not it's not great. So they began to really look into what environmental factors affected the outcome of the final product of the grapes being turned into wine from their vineyards. And this is where we get climats from. They started to establish climats. Now, it's much more of a uh, legal <laughs> definition than anything, but it is still very tied up in the idea of the terroir of that specific vineyard. Yeah, because uh, they would be sitting there and they're like in, for example, Eau Cote de Nuit, you have much sheerer winds, and that ends up affecting the grapes in a different way than just over the edge of the slope itself. So these parcels are very microclimate specific. Yeah. They mapped out environmental factors to specific borders. And so it, it is completely terroir, but it's also a, a little bit more of a rustic understanding of terroir. Yeah. And the Cistercians, uh, in line with this mode of thinking, also began to wall off their vineyards mm. to prevent animals and stuff from getting in. They established the very first enclosed vineyard in 1336, Clos Vougo, I believe is how you pronounce it. Maybe it's Clos, it's C-L-O-S-V-O-U-G-E-O-T. So again, first enclosed vineyard in 1336 and is still running to this day. Now that we, because this started to produce pretty high quality wines, mm -hmm. were they still only using this for sacramental purposes? No. So... The wines became pretty central to the local economy, particularly the merchant classes that began to rise up kind of towards the mid to late Middle Ages. Um, you know, they began to sell these wines off to outside markets, uh, made its way all the way to Paris, much less than Champagne, but we'll get into why that matters a little bit later. However, uh, it, it, there was a very large demand for the wines of Burgundy because even at that time, before we had our modern winemaking practices, before we had the modern wine industry, Burgundy clearly stood out as a region for making very high quality wines. And particularly the nobility, who could pay a lot of money, really latched on to that. So this became, yes, it was about sacrament, but it also became about passion and money as well. That's interesting. So a group of people who have basically sworn off money now have possibly the quickest or not the quickest, but one of the most powerful devices of wealth mm -hmm. in the nation. Well, remember, abbeys require maintenance, so they did need money for that kind of thing. And also, you know, again, you have a whole merchant class that is participating in this as well. So mm -hmm. That's interesting. So if it was used as cultural and political power, and this was something that just cropped up, over the tenure of the Cistercian monks, then what are some of the kind of political influences that ended up shaping the region from that point? Because that would have put it on the map in a very different context yeah. than it had been previously. So we had the rise of the Dukes of Burgundy in the 14th and 15th centuries. This, you know, obviously still... A lot of powers in the church, but the dukes really um, were big on wealth and prestige for their bloodline and for the region of Burgundy as well, because that reflects directly back on them. 
So a way of consolidating power was also to be like, well, hey, we have this fantastic wine. Yeah. And that adds to their ability to negotiate with other nations Mm -hmm. or even just their image. Yeah, mostly. Well, I guess technically at the time it would have been other nations, but it still was largely kind of um, region specific trade that they were doing. Some of the the wines did make it out to like England and I think Finland even had some of their wines. So it was about competing between royalty. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Okay, so it's like, hey, well my party had this amazing wine and I yeah. currently am the patron of this region. A lot of it ended up being who gets into the royal court. Interesting. Particularly um we'll get to this down the road when France became France proper as we more know mm. it today join us in a time where where you sit at the king's table actually matters yes yeah so the dukes of burgundy became the controlling force over burgundy again 14th and 15th centuries and they ended up actually um getting a lot of vineyard holdings for themselves so it wasn't just the church anymore that was the main vineyard holder i still think they owned the majority of vineyards at least when the dukes first came into power But they did start to buy up land for themselves as, again, it was a source of economic and cultural power. I'm just imagining them them at parties just being like, oh, well, I have my own vineyard now Mm -hmm. in Burgundy. Yeah. And they had the money to, you know, hire people to tend the land, make the wine, all that stuff. Gosh, I got to figure out which ones still have that heritage. Because the the weird thing about the laws in Burgundy is that so many have just been in their family for generations. Mm -hmm. So how did that end up expressing itself, though? Like, what were some of the big moves that were made during that time? Well, kind of probably the biggest legacy of the Dukes was a Duke, Philip the Bold, in particular. Uh, Oh, this guy was super rebellious. Yeah. So, well, rebellious might not be the best way to put it. Um, So let me explain. So in 1395, we have Duke Philip the Bold outlawing Gamay in favor of Pinot Noir. I know I mentioned earlier, we don't know exactly when Pinot Noir came into Burgundy. The first reference we have to it is under the name Norian in 1370. So... Gamay began to be planted because it was a lot easier to grow. It was easier to produce and to wine. Mm. And we are on kind of the tail end of the Black Plague in Europe at this point. That led to A, a lot of death, but B, a lot of people kind of fled these um, more populated centers to get away Mm. from the plague. So there weren't as many hands to work the vineyards either. So Dijon, Macon, Bone, all of these places would have been areas where the population suddenly had a a sharp decline, either Mm -hmm. through people running away or by dying. So Gamay started to be planted a lot. Uh, Gamay also has higher yields, so you can make more of it. Oh my gosh, thicker Um, skins as mm -hmm, well, so they're not as environmentally susceptible. All around, it's an easier grape to grow. However, it didn't fetch as high of a price, and it's not as prestigious. So, Phil the Bull didn't like this. This threatened his wallet more than anything, and also his standing in, you know, the wine trade. And if I'm not mistaken, he was constantly taking shots at the uh, king of france mm-hmm. yeah he was he was a very interesting guy but he's most known for his outlawing of gamay he called it a disloyal uh disloyal here means more um illegal this is basically him saying you know you're not allowed to plant it anymore a disloyal grape he called it harmful to humans 
He even said that it would cause disease due to its bitterness. He really, really did not like Geme. So this, again, was, you know, who knows how much of this is authentically his actual opinions on Gamay versus the threat to Pinot Noir that Gamay had at the time. Yeah, because he couldn't say that he was doing it in order to continue his influence and power. It has to be a reasonable decision made for the sheer integrity of viticulture. Yeah. So, Which I'm very happy he did, actually. Yeah. Well, but here's the thing. It was a double-edged sword. So the edict had some other consequences. So this quote comes from the article, A Very Bad and Disloyal Variety, The Banning of Gamay by Rupert Miller. Yet, although it has come to be remembered for its damnation of Gamay, the edict of the 31st of July, 1395, actually covered several aspects of winemaking, as well as calling for the expulsion of Gamay from the Duke's much-cherished vineyards around Bone and Dijon, it strongly admonished the abandonment of good vineyard sites, the use of fertilizers to encourage a greater crop, as this was considered injurious to the wine's quality, as well as the apparently growing practice of adding hot water to the must, which Philip wished to call a halt to. So these were kind of a mixed bag. Um, you know, don't abandon your good vineyard sites. Good practice to not do that, right? However, the fertilizer problem actually had the opposite effect. It's thought that this change in practice actually led to an overabundance of yields in the vineyards. Really? And therefore uh, made the wine taste more thin and lower the quality. And therefore, the very thing he was trying to avoid, which was an economic downturn from the lowering of the quality of wine, ended up happening anyway because of what he ordered. That's interesting. So he obviously didn't have an understanding of what would produce better wines. Do you think that he actually consulted any of the people who were on the ground floor? No. And from what I've read, most people do not think that that was the case. Most people think that he thought he knew what he was talking about Ooh. and didn't and made a decision that backfired. Oh, no, I have never been part of a company where the management behaved that way. You know... Sometimes the people in power don't always know exactly what the source of that power is or why that power is justified or how that power should be used or how it impacts people yeah, in definitely, a living definitely, system. Definitely not talking about any current events with that one. No, I mean, sometimes you just have to take away people's right to grow gamay. Yeah, yeah, um, you know. And then you force them to cause something to be more fertile than it should be in order to produce the best result. Yeah. So anyway. Anywho. <laughs> so, um, again, this ban on gay may actually made things worse in the short term. Um, on top of the problem with the yields with Pinot Noir now, because gay may had become so popular and had been planted in so many vineyards, all of a sudden ripping them all up. Because I think he made them do it within the year, if I remember correctly, in the edict. Oh, so um, this was a quick rollout. Oh, uh, yeah. He wanted it gone. Uh, so that Oh, my God. To... So young. Uh-huh. Oh, uh, no, sorry. So I, it, it, I, it, I know. I... It led to a production slump, essentially. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, because that's... Because you can't, you can't make wine after you've just ripped up all your vineyards. Like, this is, hor this is actually kind of a horrifying decision, because yeah. he didn't understand winemaking. Mm -hmm. He didn't have realistic expectations for yield given the strictness with which he was enforcing a new law that was uninformed. Yeah. Oh, dear. So this led to less money coming into the region. It disrupted a lot of the merchant guilds 
who were acting as um, middlemen for external markets out of Burgundy. Eventually, though, we did see wine prices stabilize again. This was after the Duke's death, however. You can't value boldness above education. Yeah. Jeez. The wines of Burgundy were still of a high enough quality from the Pinot Noir and the long-established practices that were in Burgundy. The wines were high enough quality to still fetch a high price. But, you know, for a while, there just wasn't as much of them. But when, you know, growth caught up to demand and whatnot, that did eventually stabilize, which is good for the region because it basically kept Burgundy going. Just a small note I want to make here. Uh, a lot of people think that Gamay was relegated to Beaujolais under this edict. That's not true. It was a different territory of a different man named Edward of Beaujou. So it was an entirely different, uh, I think he was a duke, uh, duke's territory at the time. So it wasn't relegated to Beaujolais. It just was being planted in Beaujolais and that duke didn't care, obviously. Okay, so, so it was just a matter of the fact that the jurisdiction of law didn't apply mm -hmm. because it was under a different duke. Yep. Now, another thing to kind of just note as a side note at this point in history, Chardonnay did not become prevalent until the 18th century in Burgundy. At this time, however, there were still quality whites being made, but it was being made from a grape called Fromenteau, I believe, or Fromenteau, and likely this is going to be Pinot Gris. The great Pinot Gris, modern great Pinot Gris. I would love to know the etymology of that because it reminds me of the fact that uh, a lot of the groups of people that were used as force in the area, as auxiliary people, were called freemen. Hmm. And I, I believe it was actually under Philip the Bold that these guys were actually being used, which is an interesting because do you know it was from into who it was served to? As far as I know, it was just on the market like mm -hmm. any of the other wines from Burgundy would have been. But it was considered quality, so it wouldn't have mm -hmm. been going to, to soldiers. Correct, yeah. Well, most likely, at least as far as I know. Yeah, more than likely. So at this point, we, we have these dukes that kind of have these different territories. You mentioned the fact that Beaujolais wasn't even considered a part of Burgundy at that time. When did we actually start? Well, it still was. It was under the, the Dukes of Burgundy. Under the Dukes of Burgundy. Yeah. But there there wasn't as much of an established area yeah. as we know it today. So when did we start seeing the shape of Burgundy take form? Uh, 1416, under King Charles VI, mm. who established the borders of Burgundy. If you've ever heard of the uh, Hospice de Bone, this is a very famous building in Bone, obviously, uh, that is where, to this day, uh, wine auctions in Burgundy happen. Huge event in the wine industry. But anyway, this was commissioned in 1443 by Nicholas Rollin, who was the Burgundian chancellor. So this was after the industry had picked up again this chancellor in particular got a lot of wealth off of the wine industry so this is why he commissioned this building to be made interesting yeah so we start to see the culture taking this turn back towards wine as 
kind of a defining aspect of the region. Mm -hmm. Um, if they're creating a site that's also attracting benefactors at that point, then this really does represent a huge uptick. Mm -hmm. Well, it's also, it's a hospital that that's what it was originally built for. So it was also kind of like a, a big thing for the peasantry, I guess as well. And, and obviously the religious orders are very heavily involved in that because they would have been staffing it. So. In this chapter of uh, Burgundian history, we have basic care and wine. <laughs> They're one and the same to me, let yeah. me tell you. <laughs> it's wine o'clock somewhere. We'll call it, the, the chapter is called Welfare and Wine. <laughs> hey, you know, some economist needs to write that article. Yeah, man. Anyway, so <laughs> let's move on. Late 15th century, Burgundy finally becomes a part of France officially. This, this will come as a surprise to most people even listening to this podcast, because, again, when we said that Philip the Bold was kind of taking shots at the King of France, he was not taking shots at somebody who ruled over him. Mm-hmm. It wasn't part of France this entire yeah. time. Yep. It was an autonomous region. With France getting Burgundy, the nobility at this time in France had overtaken a lot of the church's influence that was there during the Middle Ages. So church influence declined over time. Eventually, many of the vineyards were sold to the bourgeoisie class after the 17th century. So a little bit while later, and there was kind of an exchanging of hands into private ownership before the 17th century, but that's where you really start to see things pick up. So in the 17th century, in 1693, is where we get a really big shift for Burgundy. King Louis the Fourteenth, yes, that King Louis, the one with the high heels. Um, he had a physician, uh, Fagan or Fagon. I'm uh, just going to say Fagan because you know I'm from Virginia, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> he prescribed King Louis a uh, what he called old Bourgogne wine for the king's health in the Ordinance de Fagon. This led to a preference for Burgundian wines by the royal court. So remember earlier, I mentioned that Champagne had made its way to Paris, and Burgundy had as well, but Champagne had much more influence on that market. Before this point, Champagne was the drink of the royal court, Mm -hmm. in large part due to the fact that the Paris market had easier access to Champagne than it did to Burgundy, because Burgundy is farther away. So We also had, and you can hear about this in our Champagne episode, we actually had a royal station that was in Champagne. Yeah. So the wine of the surrounding area was just what was used during royal things, and it became a habit in order to have any wine from Champagne during royal proceedings. Yeah. So this led to a shifting away from Champagne toward Burgundian wine. So then... Burgundy kind of, um, I don't want to say it exploded, but it definitely boosted Burgundy outside of kind of the immediate regions that they had been trading with. And again, they had made their way to like England and some other countries, but this really upped the demand from very important people for Burgundian wine, which really helped the region financially. Well, which is interesting because that means within the span of, I mean, it took 300 years. But they become a part of France, and then it's not until, you know, they they become a part of France in the late, you know, 1400s, and then it's not until 1693 that you see this preference being developed 
But as soon as that preference is developed, it's, you know, the only way is up at that point. Yeah. And that's not to say that there weren't royal courts in France that had been, you know, partial to Burgundy up to this point, but... But not at the top. And again, remember, before, you know, Burgundy became part of France, a lot of regions of France were kind of these autonomous zones that had their own nobility and whatnot. Mm -hmm. But having, you know, the central head of all of France now going for your wine is a huge bump. That's, I mean, yeah, that's massive. And also with the explanation of, well, it's for your health. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So then we fall on to, um, depending on, you know, which social class you were in at the time, a good or a bad thing. The French Revolution started in 1789, seized a lot of church land. Uh, the, The people seized a lot of church land. The church was very disliked by the French Revolution, as was the nobility, obviously. The church lands that were seized obviously included their vineyard holdings, and these were given to private ownership of the bourgeois class. So after the revolution and then Napoleon and the Napoleonic inheritance laws, and again, we did talk about this last episode, so I won't go too into it here, but in very brief summary, every child gets equal inheritance under Napoleonic law. So that led to a lot of people owning one row of vineyards and or uh, one row of vines in a vineyard, even people owning different vines within the same row on the vineyard. So it got very confusing. You can't even really produce wine with that amount of grapes. You just, it's not feasible. So along came our negotiant houses. The negotiant houses began to really be established in the 1720s and the 1730s. The negotiant house Edme Champy was established as the first negotiant house that I could find in 1720. So right at that time is when they started to come in. Now, again, uh, I think we did talk about this a little bit in the last episode, but a negotiant house, if you don't know what it is, buys grapes from the growers and then makes a wine under their own label. So you go to three or four families in, let's just say Romane Conti, why not, who might own a few parcels here and there, and you say, hey, I'm... Louis Jadot, that's the biggest negotiant house in France, and I want to make your wine for you. Sell me your grapes. And they sell you their grapes, and you make your Louis Jadot Romane Conti, and you sell it for $15,000 or whatever that would be. <laughs> um, so, and that's not even really that much of an exaggeration. No, it's uh, it's not. That's It's funny because it's true, yeah. you know? Um, so, but if you do see Louis Jadot, it's probably not going to be $15,000. No, 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 no. Go no, ahead and yeah. try and pick that one up if you yeah. can. It's a great introduction to the region. Louis Jadot makes pretty much all levels of, of Burgundy at this yeah. point. Anyway, going back to our negotiant houses, they really helped keep the wine industry going after this fractionalization of the vineyard holdings that happened. I mean, I'm glad that they did because it really was a lack of foresight that I mm-hmm. think the Napoleonic laws had. Yeah, I really, region. when you look at it now, you're like, that was so dumb. Why did he- <laughs> well, and that's the thing because you look at how he handled Bordeaux. And even though there are some things that are a little nonsensical and a couple of things that changed simply because the climate itself changed, you know, you had, uh, you had a different area become available simply because of irrigation techniques. It looks like he actually cared about Bordeaux. With Burgundy, he was just like, oh, yeah, uh, sure. Um, uh, Divide it evenly amongst yourselves. 
Bye. Well, but this was for all of France, though, according to my understanding. Yeah, but he didn't he didn't establish anything else in order to keep it going. Yeah. It was just like, there you go. Yeah. Bye. Well, I mean, they've survived, so. They, yeah. You know. Well, luckily, we had some people, some entrepreneurs, some creative thinkers that yeah. came in and knew how to do something. That, yeah, that that is a big problem that persists to this day. Negocion houses do make up, I believe, like 75% of the market share for Burgundian wines to, still. Anyway, though, moving on to the uh, 19th century in 1861, we have the Bone Committee of Agriculture, which was a body that had formed, and it releases the first formal classification of the Burgundian vineyards. This was a modified classification system based on the book Historie des statistiques de la vigne des grandes vignes de la Côte d'Or by Dr. Jules Laval. Now in... Or is it Lavalle? Lavalle? Lavalle. It probably is Lavalle. Um, so I in, hope it's Lavalle. In, in his book, he had five classifications I promise you guys, I tried to find what those classifications were. I, I couldn't find them, so I don't know if they're lost to time or Google is just a bad method of trying to find this. I was trying to find the notes that were taken by the Cistercian monks, and I, I, I couldn't. I searched I, for like I think you're going to have to go to an actual archive to, uh, to get those. And they'll be in French. Yes. But um, the Bone Committee of Agriculture took these five and narrowed them down to three classifications. And then in 1936, the Appellation d'Orge and Contrôlée system was introduced into France, and this further codified the Burgundian system of ranking vineyards into law. Which is interesting because we already had the differences in each parcel of land being defined by Clamat, but with these in addition to that, you can just see how the prestige of the area would end up being increased and increased as every time that a new system was introduced, it considered certain areas to be exceptional. Yeah. So we had a bit of a downturn pretty much immediately after this, actually. There was a depression in France in the 1930s, which was followed by World War II, which I actually don't know if German troops made it into Burgundy, but I do know they made it into Champagne. So it makes sense that they would have made it into Burgundy as well. Either way, they did suffer, the vineyards did suffer damage from the war. And the worst damage that was done to my understanding was that, you know, a lot of people fled from Burgundy at this time because it was kind of right on the German front for mm -hmm. a while. And this basically let the vineyards get overgrown, unkept. Because they had no owners. The owners had fled from the region. So when people came back, thanks to the innovations of World War II and um, the use of chemicals for warfare, uh, we thankfully got something good out of that to salvage it a little bit, I guess, which was chemical fertilizers. Now, mm. these really helped Burgundy get back on its feet rather quickly. However, there is also too much of a good thing. And the soils ended up overly fertile and particularly with too much potassium. Mm. So potassium-rich soils for grapes tend to lead to lower acidity in the wine. Pinot Noir and Chardonnay both need acid. Tons. Yes. Uh, or else they taste very thin and watery. 
This led to a very big problem in the 70s and 80s of Burgundian wines tasting thin and watery. But thankfully, the region has started to recover. Um, obviously, they're not using as much fertilizer now. And actually, the modern uh, natural wine movement, if you don't know what I'm talking about, listen to our natural wine episode that we did, or episodes, I should say, part one and part two. Oh, that started was a long episode. Uh, yeah. it, it was one recording. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It was one. It was one for us. It was two for you guys. We were merciful. Um, but but the uh, what we know as the modern natural wine movement actually began in Beaujolais, which is again technically part of Burgundy, but kind of not really. Um, and that has made its way into Burgundy proper. A lot of our producers are now looking at more holistic vineyard management methods. A lot more natural winemaking methods. So. Now, the price of Burgundy alone will tell you that there is still a lot of prestige in this part of the world, uh, in this, you know, wine market, and they're doing just fine. So, yeah, that is the um, history of Burgundy kind of in short, actually. Burgundy is one of the most documented wine regions history-wise in the world. So... There's a lot we couldn't really get to, but uh, we wanted to kind of keep it about the wine for you guys. And uh, that's a good place to focus, considering that we're a wine, beer, and spirits <laughs> educational yeah, podcast. It, it's a pro pro, I think. It's a pro pro. Yeah, it's clutch or apropos, I should say. Not cap. Um, <laughs> no cap, bro. No cap, bro. No cap, bro. Oh God, just Burgundy's bussing. Nah, nah, don't bring him into this. <laughs> You don't want to bring that man into this. Uh, Jim Travolt will will mess you up. The the characters that we make before we record this show would, would shock and appall you, listener. I just want you to know. <laughs> we spare you so much. It's so true. Like the the hard turns that we need to take in conversation in order to actually talk about the podcast sometimes is crazy. Yes. Unless we have wine in hand because, you know. Talk about the experience you're we, having. Then we can't talk about anything else. Yeah, because it's normally delightful, especially if it comes from Burgundy. <laughs> Good callback, Michael. There we go. <laughs> I'm trying, man. I'm trying. But yeah, so that's that's Burgundy. So we were able to discuss who brought in the practice, how the grapes got there, when viticulture really took off, and what has either made or deterred success from the region. Mm -hmm. Luckily, we are in a time when there is an upturn. That does mean that we have some stuff that both Gabe and I think is a little overpriced, but at the same time, it produces some amazing stuff, and it also becomes this exemplary region for educating people on terroir. Yeah. Which, again, is one of the reasons why this is such a fascinating region, especially for me. I would love to visit there someday. Yeah. And maybe maybe I'll visit the octagonal uh, church. Oh, I would love to go to all the historical buildings there. Yeah. Yeah. That would be a lot of fun. Like just And also even just seeing like the Waldorf vineyards. Like I wonder if stepping into some of these microclimates, you can feel the difference. Simply because the same environment that you're experiencing, the grapes are experiencing. It's entirely possible. So thank you guys so much, though, for joining us. Have we discussed what we want to do for the next episode? We haven't. I've actually been thinking, uh, I was thinking about this the other day. We haven't talked about beer in like forever. Let's talk about beer. Um, and I literally like as I was sitting here because I was about to ask you the same thing. I was like, what if we did an episode? Because, OK, Michael and I have like 
not opposite taste in beer, but like Michael likes IPAs. I like lagers. And I was kind of like, it might be fun to have like a battle episode where we each make the case for the kind of beer that we like and why we like it. I don't know. It might be fun. We want to, I think we want to talk about beer regardless, but I no. I'm kind of, I'm, I'm on board with the concept so far. Cool. Yeah. Let's, yeah. let's elaborate on that after we finish recording. Thank you for joining us for behind the scenes at Laidback Lush, where we discuss the things that we want to continue discussing. Yes. Um, anyways, but thank you guys so much. Please do follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Check out our last episode if you want to know more about Burgundy or how to read the labels. Mm-hmm. Or just um, the nature of the wines themselves and yeah, the typical profiles you'll get. Exactly. Uh, and I think that you'll really enjoy it. That is at LaidbackLush on Instagram and Twitter, though. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have been Michael. I have been Gabe. Thank you for joining us today. Cheers. Cheers.